Not long ago on a 4th of July weekend, there was a junior high student who had secured some fireworks and he wanted to show them off to his friends. And he had one piece in particular, it was called the supernova and it was supposed to give off this giant plume of purple sparks with a, with a gold halo around it and he couldn't wait to show it off. So he said, let's meet at the park on Friday night. And they said, okay. Friday night arrived and it was kind of rainy outside, but it had broken for a while. So they decided to still go ahead and meet. But when they got to the park, it started to rain again and it was rather wet, but he didn't want to stop the celebration. So he said, hold on, let me, let me go set it up. And they all stood there with their, their hands in their pockets and their hood pulled up over their head and they said, hurry up. And he went out about 20 feet and was trying to fiddle with the supernova rocket to make sure it didn't come back at them. And they were all getting impatient. They wanted to leave and get out of the rain. Finally, he said, okay, I think I've got it. Are you ready? And he was met with a chorus of yes from all the the friends that just wanted to hurry up and get it over with. So he said, okay, I'm going to light it. And they said, hurry up. So he took the lighter and he, he lit the fuse and it started to, to spark and burn and it went out and he ran back and, and stood with them expectantly and then it got underneath the rocket and it went out. And they all stood there and, and looked for a second and then finally somebody said, come on, it doesn't work, let's go. And they made a, a turn to leave. He said, no, 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 wait for it. And he had seen enough fireworks with his dad and other people to know that sometimes when it went underneath there, maybe it got blocked by a piece of paper or it lit a piece of paper on fire and that had to take some time to relight it. He, he knew enough not to grab fireworks five seconds after the fuse had gone out. So he said, wait for it, wait for it. And so they all stood there, which seemed like a long time, but it was only a few more seconds. And sure enough, the paper caught fire and all of a sudden sparks began to to come out and then, and then blossomed into a, in a gigantic thrust and it, the t- rocket took off and as promised, it exploded like a supernova with a big purple bloom and a golden sparked halo. It came. It was delayed, but it came nonetheless. They just had to wait for it. In Job 24, Job tells his three friends to wait for it. Not for a supernova rocket to go off, but for the judgment of God. If you recall, as we've made our way through this book so far, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, his three friends have been trying to convince Job that God visits sin and wickedness immediately in this life. And, and that's the reason Job has been suffering. He's, he's been, they've been trying to convince Job that, look, because of all this calamity that has come upon you, you must have done something to deserve this because that's how God's judgment works. The wicked do not stand. They do something evil and God brings judgment down on them in this life immediately, no delay. And Job is not buying it. He's standing firm on his, on his belief and his faith and they don't like it. They don't like the fact that he is, is not uh, coming around and believing the same thing they do. Job's telling his three friends essentially in this chapter to wait for it. God's judgment is something that happens at the end. It's delayed. 
and the delayed wait for it nature of God's judgment is consistently taught throughout the Bible. We're going to look at some of that teaching along with a crystal clear parable from Jesus on delayed judgment. Can't miss it. We're going to take a look at that from the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. And lastly, we're going to highlight the purpose of a chapter like Job 24. Job 24 is essentially an entire chapter devoted to specific examples of wickedness and spiritual darkness and then delayed judgment. Why would God give us a chapter about wickedness, spiritual darkness, and delayed judgment? So let's go ahead and read through the entire chapter. This is Job 24, starting at verse 1. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty, and why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil, seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They tread the wine presses, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No one will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses, by day they shut themselves up, they do not know the light. For deep darkness is mourning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. You say, swift are they on the face of the waters, their portion is cursed in the land, no treader turns towards their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters, so does Sheol, those who have sinned. The womb forgets them, and the worm finds them sweet, they are no longer remembered, so wickedness is broken like a tree." They wrong the barren, childless woman, and do not do good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security, and they are supported, and his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while, and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and will show that there is nothing in what I say. At the beginning of this passage, Job asks a question in verse 1, and this question sets the tone for the entire chapter. He says, what are, why are not the times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know him never see his day? So because this sets the tone for the whole chapter, we need to make sure we understand what what he's asking here. He's saying, why doesn't God have set times for judgment? Why, Why doesn't God bring judgment on the wicked in this world so that the people of God 
can see it. That's what he's asking. And he's going to spend a good chunk of the rest of the chapter talking about some of the sins of the wicked. I think you heard that as we read through it. There are a lot of details, description, uh, detailed descriptions of, of the particular sins. Why does God allow them to continue with prolonged life? Why does he exalt them? Why, why are they lifted up? Or it seems that way in this life. Why, why are they secure in this life? Why doesn't God do something and act and bring an end to all this sin and wickedness and evil. So this question drives the whole chapter, but by the time we get to the end, Job answers it. He answers his opening question. So that sets the tone. Then in verse 2, we see the examples of wicked activity. It says, some, some move landmarks. Now, we, most of us, if we have property, have some kind of you know, survey pin in the ground somewhere, and we usually don't mess with those. But in the ancient Near East, this was a crime and it was kind of a big deal. You can imagine in an agrarian society when everything depended on pasturing your flocks, if you move boundary markers, you could acquire a lot of new land. Maybe a lot of new land that has more green on it than your land. Or maybe land that had access to, to water that your land didn't. Or simply, like he's saying, uh, they seize flocks and pasture them. If you move the boundary markers, now you can claim whatever, whatever animals are in there. That's those are the kind of crimes that are being described here. It was a big deal in the ancient Near East when everything, uh, most peoples in this in agrarian society, everything was tied up in animals and crops. That's how you measured someone's wealth. So if you could move those landmarks around, you could steal and acquire more wealth. Verse 3, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless and take the widow's ox for a pledge. So the wicked steal from those who are least likely to put up a fight, the most vulnerable. I mean, think about it. If you're a wicked person and if you're going to steal from someone, you might as well steal from someone who's least likely to put up a fight, the, the widow, the, the orphan. Uh, why not steal from them? Not only are they not going to put up a fight, but if it's found out and you're discovered, there's no dad to come looking for you. There's no father to come or, or husband to come track you down. So let's go ahead and steal from the widows and orphans. Then we have a description of the victim. Verse, verse 4 and following, it says, The poor live in fear of the wicked. They're afraid to go outside, afraid to travel. They go into hiding like, like animals. Verse 5, the, the poor are forced to run around like nomads, living in the wilderness, hiding and living off the land, eating whatever they can find. They don't have homes. Verses 6 through 12, further description of the, the, the wickedness, the, the victims of the wickedness. They forage in the field. They glean from the vineyards. You remember gleaning is the practice of after the, the paid workers have gone through the fields or the vineyards and they've gathered all the grain or the fruit, then the poor could come along afterwards and pick up anything that they might have left off the, the plant or the vine or the tree or maybe even pick things up off the ground that they've dropped. It was a time-consuming, labor-intensive activity and it produced very little yield, but it was a way to get food. It's how the poor were, were kept alive sometimes by gleaning fields. They're driven from their homes because somebody's taken it by force or through deceit have, have uh, you know, obtained or, or t- captured their homes. They're exposed to the elements without adequate shelter. It says they cling to the rock for lack of shelter. You've probably seen 
places like this, formations where the rock's fairly straight, but then there's maybe a little bit of indentation. And if you just kind of press yourself back into that, you can kind of keep out of the rain. That's what I envision with clinging to the rock for lack of shelter. Verse 9 is a brief break from the description of the victims. We're given another listing of the, the crimes of the wicked. They take children of widows away from them and take a pledge against the poor. So they're stealing children. Again, an example of, of wickedness. Either outright abduction or, or forcing the poor to, to give up their children as payment or security on a pledge for, as collateral for money that they need to survive. Verses 10 and 11, as a result, the victims go without proper food and clothing. They go about naked, hungry. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They, read the, they tread the wine presses but suffer thirst. So this is a, an image of maybe even the children that were abducted being forced to work but being withheld the fruit of their labor. They're, they're forced to work in the fields. They're forced to press the wine presses, but they don't get any of the food or the grain or any of the drink. Verse 12, the cries of these victims are heard by God. It says, yet God charges no one with wrong, or so it seems, or so it seems. More wicked activity in verse 13. Those who rebel against the light are talking about the wicked who perform their sins under the cover of of darkness. Now you're going to see light and dark or darkness or a deep darkness. That's mentioned several times in those, in those following passages. Now literally it means the crimes that these people are committing are done under the cover of darkness. They're literally going out at night and, and committing the sin. But spiritually the Bible often uses the terms of light and dark to represent Righteousness and wickedness, or good and evil. We'll talk more about that a little while later. Verse 14, the murderer. Verse 15, the adulterer. Verse 16, in the dark they dig through houses. And we might th- hear that phrase and say, oh, they're ransacking a house. They're, they're digging through drawers and closets and, and looking under things. Yeah, maybe, but literally also, remember a lot of these homes were built out of, out of mud bricks or, or clay. And so at night, if a thief wanted to, they could take some kind of sharp instrument and literally dig through someone's house so they could go in and steal. Verse 17, the activity of the wicked takes place in darkness. The day-night cycle is reversed when people normally rise up in the morning to go to work. Uh, they're sleeping. Instead, they rise up at night and that's when they go to work. As they rebel against light and make friends with darkness, they're really making friends with evil. That's what the end of verse 17 means. Light and darkness. Well, then in verse 18, Job summarizes his friends' positions. uh, Friends, their their, their position, what they're trying to convince him of. You'll see that in the beginning of verse 18. He says, you say, that's his way of of spinning it it around. He's saying, okay, here's, here's what I'm hearing from you. You say... The swift, swift are they on the face of the waters, meaning the wicked don't last long in this world because God's judgment is immediate. If you do something bad in this life, then God brings bad on you. They're, they're swift, uh, like on the face of the waters. And the, the imagery here is something, I don't know if you've ever stood on the edge of a, a 
rapidly moving river or stream and you've thrown a leaf or a piece of driftwood in and it just takes off and, and bobs right down, it's, it, it's gone. It moves away rather quickly. That's the imagery here. The wicked are, are, are whisked away rapidly. The life of the wicked is cut short. Their portion is cursed. No treader turns toward their vineyard. In other words, no activity. Their vineyards are, are fruitless. No, nothing's going on. They're not having any wealth. Their, their ability to produce crops is cut off. Verse 19, just as drought and heat absorb and make water disappear quickly. I'm sure we've all seen that on a, on a hot sidewalk or blacktop. Put a, a drop of water down. It doesn't last long. So death quickly takes those who have sinned. They're forgotten by their own mothers. They lie dead in the ground. They're taken away and forgotten. They have no life or future existence. So this is the summary. That's what Job is saying. You say this. You say that the wicked are, are gone. They're cut off. They're, they're whisked away. That's what your position is. Instant judgment. No delay. Quick. But then Job answers his opening question in verse 21. So he's opposing that position. Uh, verse 21 is just a quick review of the sins of the wicked. These are crimes committed against the weak and the vulnerable. And then verse 22, he says, Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. You see, he's disagreeing with his friends. He's saying, you say they're cut off. and I'm saying, no. Mm -mm. God prolongs their life. I often see the wicked and, and those committing sin and evil living quite a long time, is what he's saying. They do not go down to Sheol and disappear quickly. God prolongs their life. There is a delay in judgment. Job's saying, wait for it. The wicked raise, are raised up. God gives them security and support. And yet his eyes are upon their ways. His eyes are upon their ways. They're not getting away with anything. Verse 24, they're exalted a little while, then they're gone, they're brought low, gathered up like all others. They're cut off like heads of grain. That sounds like a harvest. That sounds like judgment language when God brings in a harvest and a reaper. God's judgment is delayed. The whole time the wicked are sinning, God's eyes are upon them. He sees everything and the wicked do face God's judgment it is delayed but it is there wait for it and then verse 25 this is a challenge Job issues a challenge to prove him wrong anybody can show me I'm not right prove me a liar go ahead Wait for it. If we were to summarize chapter 24, it would be like this. God chooses to delay his judgment of the wicked, even in extreme cases of sin and wickedness. And we saw some extreme cases here. God is saying, wait for it. Evil may seem to go unpunished in this life, but it only seems this way. The judgment is delayed, final judgment. Job longs for his own vindication and acquittal. As we've moved through this, this book, we've seen that quite a few times where Job is longing for that day, his, his day before his, his accuser, his day before God, where he can stand there possibly with an arbiter or a mediator to make his case. 
And he thinks, if I can just stand there, I know God will acquit me. I know I will be found in the right. So he has faith. He also has faith that he will bring judgment on the wicked. On the one hand, Job says, I believe my Redeemer lives and he will raise me from the dead and he will grant me peace when I stand before God. And on the other hand, he says, I also know that God will judge the wicked. That that final judgment awaits those who rebel against the light. And just as Job is right about his Redeemer in the resurrection, he's also right about the delayed judgment of God. Uh, Colossians 3.25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. No partiality. Jesus teaches on final judgment quite frequently in the New Testament. We're going to look at one parable. This is Remember I said there's a cl- crystal clear parable from Jesus on the teaching of delayed judgment. So here it is. This is Matthew 13, starting at verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then, Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, oftentimes when we read the parables of Jesus in the New Testament, we we see the meaning after careful study and, and comparing scripture to scripture, This isn't one of those times. This is one of those times where Jesus actually interprets the parable for us. So I'm going to skip down to verse 37. uh, Excuse me, verse 36. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So once again, this we don't have to wonder. We, we don't have to, to sit and debate with one another and say, well, I think he was teaching this in that parable. The, he gives us the answer key. It's, it's a one-to-one. This equals that. This equals that. And he tells us, This parable is about the final judgment and Jesus is saying, wait for it. Wait for it. 
You're not going to see in this world, you're not going to see a, a clear black and white distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who believe in Christ and those who don't believe in Christ. You're just not going to see it. You're going to see some Christians that die tragically and early, and you're going to see some wicked, evil people that live long, wealthy, healthy lives. You're not going to see it in this world. Wait for it. The judgment comes at the end. It's delayed. Two things really stand out from this parable. One is the, the black and white nature of Jesus' teaching. This is, there, there is a line in the sand. There are only two groups here. There is no fence post to sit on. There is no third group of people that are still trying to make up their mind or, or another group that we're not sure what to do with it over here. There are two groups, wheat and weeds. That's it. That's it in this life and that's it at the judgment. Very clear-cut teaching. And then the second thing that stands out is that they're going to continue together on the earth until the final judgment, until this great separation. And when that happens, these two different groups have two very different eternities. It doesn't get much clearer than that. But the judgment is delayed. And Jesus says, wait for it. Why? I'm sure we're not the first ones to ask that question. Why, why is it delayed? Why does God delay judgment? Why doesn't he act right now? When we see injustice, when we see wickedness and evil, why doesn't God just get on that right now? It's delayed. I'm sure there are a lot of reasons and some of them aren't revealed to us in God's word, but there are at least three that we're going to touch on to glorify himself, to accomplish his purposes, and because there's no other way. So let's take those in reverse order. Number one, there's no other way. If, if we as, as people in, created in the image of God, if God took action and, and gave judgment for sin immediately with no delay, it just wouldn't work. We wouldn't be here. Consider Adam and Eve. If, if God struck them down and sent them immediately to, to a fiery hell, the moment that they rebelled against his word, where would we be? Well, we wouldn't be here. Okay, well, God could just start over. He could create a new man and a new woman. Okay, the same thing's going to happen to them. And over and over and over again. If you think back to your childhood, the first, the first time you ever broke God's word in thought, deed, or action, if he gave us the full brunt of wrath that we would deserve for sinning against a holy God, we would be annihilated. We, we would be tossed into the fiery judgment immediately. It just wouldn't work. It's like trying to live on planet Earth without water. It can't be done. We have to have water. It just wouldn't work. It's trying to live without an atmosphere. We have to have it. It just wouldn't work any other way. We can't continually be exposed to the coldness of space with no air for us or the plants. It just wouldn't work. In the same way, it wouldn't work if God gave out his judgment immediately upon sin. It has to be delayed. There's no other way. So that's number one reason. Number two, to accomplish his purposes. To accomplish his purposes. Remember Genesis 50, 20. This is at the end where Joseph is standing with his brothers 
He says, as for you, you meant it evil against me. And of course, he's referring to when they sold him into slavery after beating him and throwing him in a pit, sending him off. You meant that for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is not the author of evil, but God in his providence uses evil to accomplish his purposes. That's what scripture teaches. To accomplish his purposes. Joseph in Egypt to save thousands, tens of thousands of people. The cross would not have happened if God did not providentially decree it and use evil for his purposes. God is not responsible. He is not the author of it, but he uses it. Remember Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. He tells his listeners, you crucified... Jesus. Jesus was crucified according to the foreknowledge and plan of God, and he was crucified at the hands of lawless men. That was an evil act, but it was used for God's purposes, the cross. We can look to the book of Job itself. Uh, Job, remember at the beginning, way back in chapter 1, the Chaldeans, the Sabians, fell upon him and his, his livestock and his servants, and they were killed that's evil. Murder is evil. But we wouldn't have the book of Job. We wouldn't have Job being up here and then suffering and then, and then being raised up and exalted at the end. We wouldn't have Job as a type of Christ to point us to Jesus. We wouldn't have this, this book teaching not only the original readers, but every person since the, the writing of scripture to learn about Christ. God uses it for his purposes so there's no other way. He, he accomplishes his purposes. That's why it's delayed. And number three, to glorify himself. Job was right in verse one when he said, why do those who know God never see his judgment? We don't. We don't see the, the judgment of God, certainly not the final judgment of God on, on unbelieving uh, sinners and wickedness and, and, and evil in the world, but we will. We will. The final judgment hasn't happened yet. That's why we don't see that. If you go to a, a funeral of a believer and the funeral of an unbeliever, and besides the words of scripture that may or may not be shared, but the, the mechanics, the logistics of the funeral itself, they look very similar. Coffin, coffin. Cemetery, cemetery. People showing their respects, people showing their respects. Flowers, flowers, they look very similar. We don't see upon the death of the, of the wicked some kind of lightning strike or some kind of sign from God. It's invisible to us, but it will be visible at the final judgment. We will see it and it will glorify God. God's judgment declares God's glory. It is part of his character. It's often been said that the, the, the preciousness, the, the glory, the, the um, splendor of the gospel cannot be fully seen. It's like a, a diamond shining, but it really can't be seen until it's set on the, the black velvet backdrop of God's judgment. There's no contrast. If we just saw grace, grace, mercy, what is grace? It's, it's the withholding of, or it's the, the granting of something undeserved. Mercy is the withholding of something that is deserved. If we don't see what it is that we're being saved from, then, then the salvation just doesn't have the same meaning to it. 
God will display the fullness of his character and a final judgment is a big part of that. Those who lived apart from Jesus Christ and the light will receive what is due them for their sin and thrown into the lake of fire. Those who have repented and believed in God's son Jesus will be rewarded and received in the new heavens and new earth. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus was teaching. That's Matthew 13, 42 and 43. That's that, the weeds and the wheat and the fiery furnace and the, the kingdom, the, the righteous shining. That's what he's talking about. Our, our two separate eternities for the people of God and for everyone else. The judgment of God is delayed, but it will magnify God's justice and wrath. It will also magnify God's mercy and grace. It will display the fullness of his name and his character. The fullness of his name and his character. Acts 17.31 says he, meaning God, has fixed, fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's fixed. It's set. It cannot be changed. There is a day coming for the final judgment. It is fixed. R.C. Sproul once said, the unbelieving world is betting their eternity that there is no final judgment. It's fixed. So that all people will see that God is God, that he has seen it all, that he does know all, and he will make all things right for eternity. He will bring perfect justice with corresponding reward and punishment for all people, every single person, and it will be on display for all to see. Every deed, every thought, every action, every heart inclination, every motivation behind our action, every inaction, everything that we should have done but didn't, Every commandment of God that's been broken, God will bring judgment on all those outside of Jesus Christ. The unbeliever says, well, I haven't broken any commandments. We've all broken all ten commandments. We don't have to murder someone to break the commandment that says thou shalt not murder. Jesus taught that if you are angry with someone, you've broken the commandment. You don't have to sleep with someone who's not your spouse to commit adultery. You just simply have to have a lustful thought pass through your mind. We've all broken all Ten Commandments. We've all failed to completely honor our father and mother perfectly our entire lives. We've all failed to completely worship God with every fiber of our being, with heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, we've all broken all Ten Commandments. That's the nature of unbelief. It suppresses the truth of God. It suppresses it. It is known to them because it's written on the hearts of every person, but it's, it's suppressed. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about a final judgment. Notice also in chapter 24, look what we've got. We've got Job's friends that are saying, God's judgment is immediate. And Job's saying, wait for it, it's delayed. But they're both saying God brings judgment. No, nobody's arguing the fact that God judges wickedness. But when we arrive today, we, we don't have immediate or delayed. We have the suppression of it. We say, well, it's not just, just not going to happen. We're so far removed from a, from a theocentric or a God-centered worldview today that we, it's not even an option 
Well, of course there's no final judgment. That's just religious stuff. It's suppressed. There was a farmer who lived in a very rural community with a lot of neighbors and other farmers that, that lived around him. And they, most of them were, were God-fearing believers and they attended this, this small rural church that was kind of on the edge of a field. And, but this particular man was an unbeliever and, and he, his field bordered up right on the parking lot to the church. And, and he didn't believe in, in all that religious stuff and, and God. And, and he thought that the hard work is what gave him his crops and he didn't need to pray on it. And, and all the other farmers in that community didn't work on the Sabbath. They were honoring the fourth commandment. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to go to church. We're going to worship on Sunday. And this man said, you know what? I'm going to show them. And so... He decided that that field next to the parking lot, he was only going to work on Sunday. So that's what he did. He, he, he prepared the soil on Sunday. He planted the crop on Sunday. He fertilized it on Sunday. He harvested on Sunday. And every time he went past the church, he'd ease off on the throttle, and then he'd pull it all the way forward to make sure the, the, the old diesel tractor you know, put out those big plumes of black smoke and made a bunch of noise so everybody inside would know he's out there working on the Sabbath. And the harvest time came, and it was in October, and he, he brought in the harvest, and, and it was just this bountiful surplus, and he said, you know what, I, I've got to tell them what happens. I, I've got to show them you know, how, how much their, their God really does for them. So he, he hung out after church in the parking lot one day, and as his neighbors came out and the, the pastor filtered out, he said, took off his seed corn hat, and he put it in his hand, and he said, I just want to tell you something. He said, I, I've seen you go to church every Sunday. He said, but I've been out in the field. And he said, I have worked this field only on Sunday. And I'll tell you what, I've got the highest yield of corn that I've ever gotten in any field in my 30 years of farming. So where's your God? And there was a, a brief pause. And then the pastor very calmly in the back said, God doesn't settle all his accounts in October. Wait for it. What is the purpose of a chapter like Job 24? Why does God give us a passage dedicated to the topics of spiritual darkness and delayed judgment? And the answer is so that people will turn to the light. God gives us a chapter like chapter 24 so that people will turn to the light, so that people will turn to Jesus Christ. Job 24, 13 through 17, it says that those that rebel against the light, they're friends with the terrors of deep darkness. And we see that repeated dark, dark, dark language. And we said we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Well, here's a little bit later. Light and dark are concepts that the Bible uses to represent not just literal lightness and darkness, but spiritual lightness, spiritual darkness. And that's how it's being used in this context. Jesus used light and dark. In fact, if we recall, remember the beginning of the Gospel of John, the light has come into the world. Jesus, who is the light of the world, has come into the world. Jesus talks about uh, himself as the light of the world. John 3, 19, 20 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Do you see how Jesus is using light and dark in terms of spiritual light and spiritual darkness? Do you hear the suppression of the truth? I don't want to come into the light. I don't want to hear you tell me about a delayed judgment. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. This is one of his I am statements. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All those who are living apart from Christ are walking in spiritual darkness. All those who are living in Christ are walking in spiritual light. And that's the difference. That, that's the difference. Remember, we're all lawbreakers. If, if we have to go back to that, that parable about, about all manners of sin and lawbreaking, we're all lawbreakers. We're, I hope no one ever takes that, that prideful, uh, arrogant attitude that's, that's filled, filled with hubris, and, and then we walk around and we say, well, we're, we're uh, churchgoers, we're in Christ, so we're a little bit better than, than those who are outside of Christ. No, 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 no. No, we've been called into the light by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we are vessels that have been, been prepared for mercy as opposed to vessels that have been prepared for judgment. It's not us. We're not that smart. We're not that, uh, we're not that with it. We're not on the ball to be able to figure things out and choose for ourselves the light any more than Lazarus was able to choose for himself to come out of the grave. Jesus had to call him out of the grave. He has to call us to him. And he uses the ordinary means of his word and his spirit to hear the words of God, to hear the truth of God wash over and break on our ears. God's Holy Spirit, when he calls someone, allows it to go past the ears to the heart and gives conviction of sin and calls people to himself, and they repent, and they believe. That's what happened to us. That's our story. Now is the time to turn to the light. Because the final judgment is coming. There are no second chances. There are no do-overs. There will be no mercy at the final judgment, no grace at all. We talk a lot about God's grace because it is mighty, but there will be no grace for the unbeliever at the final judgment. I hope we all understand that. That's why the time to turn to the light is now. Those that walk in spiritual darkness will experience the delayed judgment of God upon their death or when Christ returns, whichever comes first. But God extends mercy to those who turn to his son. Don't wait to turn to the light. Repent of your sin. Turn to his son, Jesus. Confess your sin. Trust in the only one who offers forgiveness of your sins. Somebody might say, well, how does that work? It's pretty simple, really. Jesus was sent. He became incarnate. Jesus, who is fully God and is now fully man, and will be so forever, was sent by God from above. He became incarnate. He took on a body of flesh, and he lived as a real man the perfect life. He achieved perfect righteousness, which you and I and no one else could ever do. He did that. 
And that's a good thing because that's the only thing that God will accept is perfect righteousness. Jesus' perfect righteousness was accomplished. And then he went to the cross and made a blood payment for sin. Our elder read this morning from Hebrews, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Jesus' blood is the perfect sacrifice. It's the perfect blood atonement. It covers all the sins of his people, his sheep. And God has made the salvation available to everyone who believes. He says, if you repent of your sin, if you acknowledge yourself a lawbreaker, if you acknowledge yourself, yes, I've sinned, I deserve hell, I deserve punishment, but I'm turning to Jesus in faith, God credits that perfect righteousness to you and he accepts as payment for your sin, for my sin, the blood of Jesus so that we stand before God forgiven. And he puts his spirit inside of us so that we desire him and we want him and we thirst for him. That's how that happens. The only way anyone can be forgiven of sin is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why we are given this passage about wickedness, spiritual darkness, and delayed judgment. It's so that we will turn to the light and confess our sin and believe upon Jesus. John 12, 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Amen.